the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the fifth Sunday of Epiphany, and we are continuing in this program of uh, contemplating God manifesting Himself to us, making Himself known to us, revealing Himself to us. The Lord has made Himself known from the beginning of creation until today. He makes himself known through the power of his Holy Spirit. He makes himself known through the creation itself. He makes himself known through the prophets. He makes himself known uh, to us in prayer. He makes himself known through the reading of Holy Scripture and from uh, our understanding of salvation history and uh, the great things that he has done before. When the Lord reveals himself to us, when he makes himself known and he shows us who we're supposed to be, the uh, obvious response of his people is fear and to uh, freeze. And when we are in fear, when we realize uh, God's power and his grace and we realize our own smallness and inadequacy, which go together, right? When we see how big God is and how holy He is, we realize how small and inadequate we are. That natural response of embarrassment can be for many of us to to freeze, to not do anything. Sometimes we turn to other people and we ask other people to build us up or to uh, tell us that we can do it, for other people to encourage us or to embolden us. What we see the prophets do is to turn back to the Lord and to see that He is the one who provides uh, all of the grace and all of the direction that's needed. And so this is uh, very similar what we read this morning with uh, Gideon to what we had seen last week with Jeremiah. You'll remember that Jeremiah says, Lord, I'm not able to do this. I'm too young. And Gideon, of course, has a very similar response. He says, I'm too small and weak. It's almost... um, Uh, comedic the way that the Lord addresses Gideon in the first place, right? He calls him a mighty man of valor. And what's Gideon doing? Gideon is hiding, right, in a wine press. So here he is trying to thresh wheat in a wine press. And the Lord says, oh, mighty, mighty man of valor. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Remember who Gideon is. This is the period of time between Joshua leading the people in the promised land. So Moses has led them out of Egypt, right? They were wandering in the wilderness. Joshua leads them into the promised land. And then they are ruled by uh, judges until the time of the kings. So uh, about 1500 to about 1000 BC, we have this long period of time of the judges. And this is the period of time that Gideon is in. So they're in the promised land, but they don't have any kind of sense centralized authority. There's no centralized army. Each of the tribes are kind of managing themselves. There isn't this kind of centralized government. The judges kind of rise up, but we read in the judges that they turn to their own way time and again. And so they're not answering the call uh, of one uh, centralized person. And so we have these uh, different judges rise up who perform these mighty deeds. And this is Gideon's turn uh, to perform a mighty deed. The Midianites are descendants also of Abraham. So they're an Abrahamic people. Uh, they were uh, the, the result of one of uh, Abraham's relations with his concubines after Sarah dies. And they are um, a, a roaming people, right, uh, that are in the Sinai Peninsula. And so they had been leading raiding parties. 
parties coming up into the promised land and they had been raiding uh, Israelite settlements. And so here's Midian uh, trying to thresh his wheat. And you'll remember we've talked about this before. The threshing floor is for us a symbol of where God meets his people. You remember that threshing floors are where um, quite often the tabernacle is placed, where the Ark of the Covenant is placed. It's uh, usually put onto a high hill or kind of a, of a peak, if you will, where there's going to be a lots of wind. Because to thresh wheat, you're going to have to take a long fork and throw the wheat up into the air, and then the breeze is going to carry away the chaff. So it has to be someplace that's raised up and where uh, the Lord is going to, to meet his people and separate the wheat from the chaff, which becomes a, a symbol for us. The wine press, of course, if you remember, is placed into the vineyard, and it's placed in the lowest spot. It's placed where the grapes can be crushed, and then they're going to travel down. Uh, the grape uh, you know, juice is going to travel down down where it's going to be sealed and fermented into wine and so it's the lowest place and so Midian is here where he's supposed to be in a high place meeting God he's in a low place descended hiding from his enemies and this is where the Lord says you're a mighty man and Midian says doesn't seem that way doesn't seem that way I've heard about all these great things that you did for the people and here I am trying to hide my wheat from the Midianites because if they see me threshing it, they're going to do what? Come and steal it from me. And so what about these mighty things I've heard? What about all these great things that you've done? I don't see any of them. And the Lord says, you're going to go forth. He gives him direction. You're going to go forth and I will be with you. Just as he told Moses when Moses says, I'm not able to go, just as he tells Jeremiah when Jeremiah says, I'm not able to go. And really, uh, if you think about it, their reasons for not going kind of make sense, don't they? I mean, Moses, a murderer in exile who has a speech impediment, that's the guy you're going to pick? Really? Jeremiah, a kid, Gideon, the smallest of a tribe, the smallest of his clan in hiding? And yet this is who the Lord goes to. He goes to the person who is least likely to be able to perform that task on their own. The one in whom that task will be performed so that there is no question that God is king and that it's by his power that they're being set forth. When we go forth and the Lord tells us what to do, there will be no question when we do it that it's God's grace and not our own. And so he says, I'm going to provide for you. And Gideon says, wait here while I present to you an offering. This is a brilliant move on the part of Gideon. And it's the response again that we see on the part of the prophets where they say, okay, Lord, let's test this. Let's, let's respond to this. Let me offer to you. And so the offering that he gives is a food offering. We want to think about the offerings that we offer in our time, our talent, and our treasure. Are we willing, when the Lord sends us, when he calls us, are we willing to respond in obedience? Are we willing to give out of our time? Are we willing to give out of our talent, out of our treasure? Are we willing to offer to the Lord? And it's after he is offered to the Lord, after he's responded, that the Lord performs this mighty miracle and the, the food is consumed that he has then belief. And so we see this formula over and over and over again where we want to believe and then to act in faith. The Lord requires that we act in faith and then we will be given belief. We are called to act and to respond first and then we are given belief. 
And so just as he goes to uh, this small man out of this small tribe in this small place, uh, when Christ comes, he doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go and gather his disciples out of the elite from the scribes and the Pharisees. He doesn't gather the great businessmen. Indeed, it's interesting that the, the mighty men like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the men of wealth and power, are secret apostles. They don't come onto the scene until later. The early apostles and those that he calls out of the twelve are up in the region of Galilee. This is the region of northern Israel. They're away from the seat of power. They're in a rural place. They're fishermen, right? They're working men. And these are the ones that he goes and he gathers. And where does he gather them? He doesn't go and, and elect them out of the synagogue. He goes to their place of work. The Lord meets them at their place of humble service to their family and to their community. He meets them at their fishing. And so again, the Lord goes and he meets with those who are the least expected, those who are the least likely to be teachers and great ministers of authority. He goes to fishermen. And it's interesting that when he gets into the boat and he casts out, we have this beautiful vision of the Lord sitting on this pristine still water and speaking to the crowd that's gathered on the hillside, the slopes that lead down to Galilee. He's created the most beautiful amphitheater with this still water and with the people gathered on this rising slope of a hill. And he preaches to them, but we don't hear a word of the sermon. Isn't that interesting? Luke says he preached for a considerable time, but he doesn't tell us what he preached. Isn't that interesting? And then as soon as he does that, he says, let's go fishing. Which should also strike us as strange, shouldn't it? After they preach, aren't they supposed to be going out and serving? Aren't they supposed to be going and baptizing and, and doing all of these miracles, right? What does he say? He says, let's go fishing. We might take then this scene, this scenario that the Lord uses in interacting with Peter, James, and John, and his brother Andrew, we might take this interaction as uh, an example of what he had been preaching. This may have been what he was preaching about. So what does he do? He tells them, let's go fishing. And they say, we're kind of experts at this, right? We've been fishing all our lives. You're a carpenter, right? We've been fishing all night. We didn't catch anything. It's not the time to go. We don't go fishing in the morning. We go fishing at night. And then the Lord says, cast out your nets. And so what do they do? Even though they don't think that anything's going to happen, even though they've got experience and they've got personal wisdom, they're what? Obedient. Obedient to God's call. Again, like Gideon, they receive the direction and then they're obedient and then... They believe. Again, we want to believe and we want to have confirmation. We want to have everything guaranteed and then we'll step out. Right? Okay, now that I know that everything's safe and it's a guarantee. In other words, now that there's no chance for a miracle because everything's been confirmed and stabilized. Now I'll do what you want me to do. The Lord does it backwards. You're going to be obedient to me and then you're going to see my grace. And so they go out and there's more fish than they can haul in. More fish than they can haul in in two boats. And of course, Peter's response again, when God has manifested to him, is, I'm not worthy. You're really big, and I'm really small. And Jesus' response to him is what? You're going to become a fisher of men. He meets him at his place of work. 
He meets him at his place of business. He meets him where he's the most confident, the most self-assured, the most experienced. He says, you're going to follow me and be obedient because what you think you know is not what you know. But when you're obedient to me, then you will receive grace. So you're not trusting in your own experience. You're trusting in God. And that's when the apostles are able to leave that work and go and do the ministry that God called them to do. It's interesting that Peter's response is so powerful that he, he perceives his own unworthiness. And this is a feeling that we want to get rid of as soon as possible. Unworthiness and embarrassment, we'll do anything to get rid of those two feelings, right? We'll prop ourselves up. We'll turn to our friends and family. Tell me good things about myself. Make me feel good about myself, right? We'll do anything to get rid of feelings of unworthiness or embarrassment. Do you notice that St. Paul brings it up in this letter to the Corinthians. He brings up his own unworthiness. He's been a minister of the gospel now for decades, and he is telling his people that he is unworthy to proclaim the gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. And then he's going to tell us why. Because I persecuted the church of God. He killed Christians. He imprisoned them. He says, I'm unworthy to do this work. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't shield it. He doesn't build himself up. He declares it. I'm not worthy. God is. Just as Gideon has done, just as Peter has done, just as Jeremiah has done, just as Moses has done, right? Over and over again, the Virgin Mary says, I don't have a husband, right? Sarah and Elizabeth said, I'm too old. We all say, I can't do it. And the Lord says, I know. That's why I'm here, right? I am big enough. I am holy enough, right? The Lord says, I will provide all things. I know you can't do it. The Lord can't be disappointed in us. He never had any preconceived notions about our worthiness. He's known from the beginning. Right? So he sends Paul out to do this work. What does he send him to do? He sends him to proclaim the gospel. And we hear the gospel presented in this, what might be the earliest Christian formula of faith. This may be the earliest example of a creed or a statement of faith uh, that we have in Holy Scripture. And it's here in, and again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. It's just a few lines. He says, this is what I preached. So this is the gospel in a nutshell. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins, right? He took our sin upon him. He took it to the cross and offered as a sacrifice so that it could be washed away. He did it in accordance with the scriptures. The scriptures have been fulfilled. In other words, all the Hebrew scriptures from Genesis through Malachi and the minor prophets and through uh, those that were proclaiming at the time that Christ came, he'd said that this is what he was going to do, and then he does it. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, again, in accordance with the scriptures. He's saying, I told you that I was going to do this. I told you that I was going to raise on the third day, and I did it. And then he appeared to the apostles, first to Cephas, then to 500 at one time, most of whom are alive. 
Isn't that amazing? So 500 at one time. Do we have their names? Do we have those stories? The ancient churches kept so many of them. And yet most of them were alive and proclaiming the gospel at that time. He appeared to James, his brother, to all the apostles, and finally to Paul. And he says, I preach these things so that you could receive them, so that you could stand in them. And then he uses this wonderful theological word that we've used so much, right? In verse 2, you remember this important theological word, if? He says, you are being saved. Isn't that great? Not you have been saved. Not you will be saved. He says you are being saved. And of course, all that is true. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. And he says you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached. In other words, that it is Christ who forgives sins. That it is he who has risen from the dead. That it is he who sends the Holy Spirit. That it is he who accomplishes all good works. And that we participate with him when we are obedient, when he calls. We participate when we are obedient, when he calls. The Lord is speaking to each of us today. He is calling us by name. He is giving us things to do that we cannot accomplish on our own, but that we can only do through the power of the Holy Spirit. They are scary things. They are big things. They are wonderful things, and they are things that bring about the salvation and holiness of God's people and of the world. O mighty men and women of valor. O mighty men and women of valor. Be obedient for your Lord calls.